This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Well, I'm going to invite someone much younger and better looking than me up. So can we make Zach feel very welcome? (laughs) I know. Maybe that's the tip. (laughs) Uh, Zach, um, in terms of feeling very welcome, I would hope and pray that you already feel very welcome in this church. How long have you been part of this family and uh, what exactly is it that, that keeps you being part of this family? Well, a long time, 20 years, my whole life, I've been a part of this church. I did, in fact, grow up here, and I think a lot of you probably knew me from that time. You probably knew me before I even knew myself. And so, yeah, 20 years, been part of this church my whole life. It's hard to leave when you've been apart so long and you know so many people. Uh, So I couldn't really imagine at this point, at least, and not for the foreseeable future, leaving. unless I really had to, but yeah, I love it here. And I'm so connected, and I love that I can be connected and serve in so many different ways. So yeah, I would never want to leave. Uh, You talked about serving. Um, Maybe maybe not everybody knows, but you do serve heaps in the life of our church. Can you share some of the ministries that you're involved in and maybe what your heart is for that? Yeah, so if you couldn't tell by my jumper, I serve in youth group. Um, This is my little advertisement. But I also serve in kids' church, doing the year five, six kids. Um, So I obviously have a heart for young people. And so much so that I've done it for my job, which is probably what you're going to ask next. Um, I'll help pack up chairs if I have to at the end um, of church. And yeah, whatever other ways I can help, because this place doesn't really run without our volunteers. So yeah, all of you are really appreciated. Um, Yeah, I'll help out in whatever way I can. Well, you know what next question I'm going to ask you. So, Zach, would you like to share (laughs) what you do when you're not here? Yes, so a big part of my non-church life is my job, and that is that I work for Crew, formerly known as Crusaders, which is a camp um, organisation that runs camps for young people. And so my job is literally to go hang out for a couple days with young people, run activities with them, eat food with them, run Christian Discovery small groups with them, Um, and basically just both share the gospel with them, but also live out the gospel with them. And so that is a big part of the rest of my church life. Uh, Well, I just want to say quite quite publicly that um, you being invited to speak this morning, I I hope you hear that as an affirmation, and I hope we all hear that as an affirmation. But actually we see in Zach someone whose heart is for God. Uh, who's been faithful in serving God, in pursuing God's call on his life, uh, who shows himself to be a man of of great character and and love for the word. And so it's a joy uh, to invite you to unpack that with us now. If you've got your Bibles, we are in James chapter 2, but I'm going to pray for Zach. I'm going to pray for us as we open up the word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity uh, once again to come together uh, in freedom without fear of persecution, uh, to sit under the ministry of the word. And God, would you hear us, our hearts this morning, say, we want to hear from you. We want to be shaped by you. We want to be a people who are formed by the word. You don't just listen or read for information, but we read and we listen to encounter you, the living God, and to be transformed by what you speak into our lives. 
And so, Lord, I want to thank you for Zach. I want to thank you for his heart for you and his heart for this community of faith here at NVBC. God, would you use him in this time, I pray, to speak powerfully into our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Oh, I don't know why I'm doing this, but here we go. As you just heard, I have been a part of this church for a long time, and it hasn't always been amazing. Like, I haven't always been a perfect person, nor am I now. As a lot of you would know, because I used to be that disruptive child running around and jumping amongst the pews, and that was who I was. And uh, Laura, I must say, Eli is going to become a really great young man, because I was just like him when I was a child. But Eli... Laura was adamant. She came up to me this morning and she's like, you better tell the story of when you were suspended from kids church. Because who knew that that was a thing, but I managed to do it. Myself, two other young lads were causing mischief in amongst kids church and we got suspended. But it was all for good. God has worked myself for good and here we are. It is a huge privilege to be up here um, and yeah, standing amongst the rest of you, a lot of you who have had a huge impact on my life and um, yeah, it's awesome to be able to share with you guys today and hopefully have some impact on you guys and, and bring God's word because I mean, I don't necessarily feel super qualified, it's a little bit awkward that I'm young and you're old and well, you're not that old but <laughs> it just feels a bit weird but in all honesty, this is God's word and we are God's people and it's for all of us. So, yeah, it's, it's a privilege to be here um, sharing with you guys as someone who is younger. As you know, I am heavily involved in youth group and I thought now that I've got the microphone and I'm up here, I would love to share with you a little bit about what happens in our youth group. Particularly this week, we had a little survey. In fact, it was just one question, not even a question. It was a statement that said, encourage our youth leaders. And so our young people were asked to do that and fill out this one question. And I'd love to share with you some of their responses because for just us youth leaders, it is, it is extremely encouraging. But I think for you guys as the church who support the youth ministry and the work that you do by financially donating, by fixing broken windows when we smash a ball into it. Everything that you as a church do goes into making this youth ministry happen. So I'd love to share with you some of their responses. A huge level of commitment that doesn't go unnoticed. Always willing to pray for us, encourage us, and hang out with us. Now, this is young people saying this. This is high schoolers. This is their heart. Thank you. I appreciate everything you have done, and especially to take time out of your night in order to share this night with us and God. Being able to represent this church and Christianity in such a positive way is an absolute blessing for me and others. Thank you. All the youth leaders are goaded because there's not one youth leader where I'm like, eh, they're all right. I don't think they know how much they are appreciated and I've truly never heard anyone say a bad thing about them. <laughs> goaded stands for greatest of all time. <laughs> I've only been here from on the start of this year, but I think my view on what youth, Jesus, and God has all changed in a good way. I've been to youths where I feel like it's not really focused on the kids and their relationship with God, and I, th 
and I really think that this youth is so much more connected. I can't express how much of a difference you've all made and how grateful I am. That's someone who's only been here since the start of the year. You do good stuff. Believe me, I can't spell, but you're great people and you will live very happy lives with God. In fact, you do this, the fact that you do this is just astounding, smiley face. I haven't been here before, but the kindness and welcomeness, if that's a word, I received was incredible. Everyone is so nice and I really feel like it's a safe place, like a family, but not. That's someone who's only come for the first time is already feeling that. I just want to thank you youth leaders for making this youth so accepting and welcoming throughout my life. I've struggled with bad anxiety problems and when I joined year seven, I, they just got worse. I almost lost my faith in God, but coming to this youth made me realize that with everything happening, the only thing I can turn back to is God. And lastly, the youth leaders here deserve so much thanks. I've been dealing with so much and was losing faith just this afternoon, but I came here and I knew, that, and I knew he was here because of all that you do for us. I know you all have struggles, but you helped me with mine, and I'm not great at showing how grateful I am, but you deserve more respect. I love you all so much, and you deserve all the thanks. I know. I, I'm, I, honestly, I'm so grateful to be able to share that with you guys, because this is the, young, this is the hearts of the young people. And yeah, without all of us and the youth leaders, um, the work that God's doing in this place, yeah, young people would still be stuck at home, losing faith, um, and stuck in their anxieties and depressions. And that was just a few responses out of the 40 that we received. 80 people there on Friday, half of them filled this out. And to think just how many mentioned God in amongst all that is also just <laughs> an incredible thing to see. So I hope that that is encouraging for you because it's certainly encouraging for us leaders. And look, if you get nothing from the sermon, I hope that this has spurred you on to continue um, loving and caring for this church. If there's one thing that doesn't get me, if it's not youth group that gets me excited, and it's not young people, then it's understanding scripture well. And it's a bit like when you do a maths test and you get a couple questions right, and you're like, yes, I actually understand this. And that's how I feel about when I read the Bible sometimes and I actually understand it. So I'm very excited to share with you the things that I have learnt um, going through James. And I love what Lewis said last week where he said that James is the sort of thing that you can rest your head on at night because I literally do. I, at the start of the year, attempted to memorise the book of James and as part of that I wrote each verse on a whiteboard next to my bed. And so when I heard that I'm preaching on James and when I heard Lewis say that, I'm like, this is amazing. I literally... Rest my head on next to the book of James each night. But if you didn't know, we're going through James chapter 2. Uh, so as you get that open, we're just going to be looking at the first half, James chapter 2, verses 1 through to 13. And there's many things I love about the book of James, not just that it's short and you can actually read it without losing interest halfway through, but I love how simple and action-oriented it is. It's very practical for us believers and it's also very well laid out you start with your greetings as most letters do and then you've got your three topics that it establishes your trials and temptations your wisdom and then your riches and poverty and then it goes a little bit deeper and then it goes deeper again and so today as we go into chapter two we're going to be going deeper into the idea of riches and poverty let me read it for you my brothers and sisters 
Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones that are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? If you are really keeping the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Really cool stuff. And I'm just going to go through verse by verse and try and unpack what it's saying. And yeah, hopefully you guys can get a little bit out of it. So here we go. Oh, and just, just to clarify, James can sometimes be a little bit harsh. I think we have seen that in previous weeks. And sometimes it's good to take what James says and then also look at the rest of scripture to clarify what he is saying because sometimes it can seem just very clear-cut like don't do this but really there's actually more underlying obviously he's influenced by Jesus being his half-brother and he would have spent time with Jesus and also spent time studying scripture for himself and so a lot of what he says would have been influenced by those but here we go verse one it says my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Again, very clear cut, straight to the point. Obviously, James is addressing believers, my brothers and sisters. And it's actually fascinating. He says this 15 times in this small book. He says, my brothers and sisters, 15 times. Not sure why totally, but the fact that he emphasizes this so often, I feel like it's a little bit like saying, are you listening to what I'm saying? Are you ready for what I'm about to say? Because this is good. And so every time he says, my brothers and sisters, he's like, come back. Come back and listen in. I'm about to say something good. And then he says, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, when it says believers, I feel like it's not discounting non-believers. Okay, I feel, I feel like this is for everyone. But the fact that it highlights believers is because the believers ought to do so. It starts to hint at uh, what he talks about in the second half of chapter 2, which we'll hear about next week, about the faith and works. The idea that if you have a genuine faith, from your genuine faith will be this outpouring of good works. And so a believer with genuine faith ought to overflow and pour out with good works. Believer ought to not show favoritism. I really like the way that the NLT actually puts it, because they say, how can you claim to have faith 
How can you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ if you show favour to other people? So a believer ought to not. Now, the word glorious in this part is kind of interesting. He only mentions Jesus twice in the whole book, which is strange because it's Jesus' half-brother. You would have thought that he'd be talking about Jesus as the main character. And some people would actually take this as evidence that it wasn't Jesus' half-brother, James, who was writing this, that maybe it was a different James. But most people would agree that it is. And I think the fact that he uses the word glorious... The glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or in some translations, the Lord of glory. The usage of this word implies that Jesus is the divine glory and hence the manifestation of God on earth. So glorious being divine, if Jesus is divine, Jesus is God. And the fact that James is saying this is extra fascinating because James is potentially one of the first books in the, in the New Testament written. Um, it comes before Acts. And so this early on in the church, people were already acknowledging that Jesus is God. Fascinating. But Johnny's going to talk a little bit more about the use of that word tonight. So if you want to hear more about that, I encourage you to be there. It's going to be good. Verse 2 to 4. Suppose a man comes in to a meeting wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So James paints a picture for us here. Two men. It's a bit like those jokes, two men walk into a bar. That would have hurt. <laughs> the fact that the, he uses the word meeting is, is not super clear what kind of meeting. Um, the original Greek uses the word assembly or synagogion, which has origins to the word synagogue. And so that implies this is a spiritual meeting, but it's still not super clear. It could be a religious meeting, it could be in worship, or it could even be um, a legal meeting. It could be court. It's not super clear, but I feel that the word, the, the use of the word meeting could just be used broadly for us as the church to say it could be in church or it could also be in the rest of our lives. I think for us in, in church, it's a very important thing to look at this, this setting, you, you can imagine two different people walking in. Which of the two people might you go towards? Which one are you naturally drawn to have a conversation with and why? What is it about that person that makes you want to go towards them? And then it's the same in our workplaces. Like there's certain colleagues that we might be drawn towards having a conversation with or even on the soccer field, in our, in our teams, um, sporting teams. This, all these little things that you might not consciously think about, but we do tend to draw towards a certain person. So here we've got our two people. We've got the one wearing golden rings and fine clothes, and golden rings were significant because they were symbolic of a person's wealth. It was an attractive display of your wealth. And so this person was clearly well off and was said to have lots of value. And then you've got the other person who's not so valuable, obviously wearing dirty clothes, potentially, in our context, a homeless person or a person 
who by the world is seen as someone that doesn't want to be that people don't want to associate with but in this example that James gives us it is clearly discrimination towards the poor he shows favor towards the rich and leaves the poor person to be in the ditch and actually during this time and in fact throughout all of biblical history discrimination is is huge it's potentially more than it is right now. People were always being split and categorised by who they were, all these labels that we were given. And we can see this most clearly in Galatians 3. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for all are one in Christ. These labels that people used to have the ways in which they were separated, and now they are no longer because of Jesus. And so when we think about our discrimination today, when we think about um, who we favour over other people, we can remember that this was already happening way back then. People were constantly being told, you've got to go hang out with these people, you've got to go hang out with these people, because that's who you're a part of, you don't associate with these other people. These labels which once separated people groups are now broken. That social barrier is broken because Jesus came to save all. And this is something that kind of blew the people at the time's mind. Like, you don't associate with those people. You don't go near them. But Jesus set the standard by going and eating with people that no one else would. He would go and he would heal the lepers and the blind, the people that were outcast. Jesus set this example for us. He broke that social barrier. So it is okay when two people walk into church to go and talk to both. You don't have to pick one and only talk to them. You might be limited by time. We've all got to rush off and go to wherever we have to go. But it is okay to talk to the person that you would not normally think to talk to. Jesus did it. So can we. And so maybe that's something for you to consider personally is how welcoming I am in church and I want you guys to reflect on that at the end, but you can start thinking about it now because we're going to come back to this verse at the very end. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? The simple answer, yes. Yes, he has. (laughs) We read it in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things in this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast. That's why I really I like the song that we did just at the very end there. It says I'm calling on the God of Mary who chose the lowly. Uh, I really like that song and it's talking about all these specific people that God called upon, people who were not super high up in that time socially. And God chose these people to do great things. It's also mentioned in Luke 6:20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It is the poor people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. There's this quote by F.B. Meyer, who was a pastor in England way back, and he said, the rich man may trust in God, 
but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. An interesting idea that a poor person has to rely on God because their material worth is very little. A rich person has the choice. They can be like, oh, I'm just going to rely on the good things that I have, the things that I can hold that will get me through life. And if I want to, I'll trust God. But the poor person doesn't really have much to cling on to other than the two strong arms of God. And that's why I really like that quote there. So this kind of, it, it leans towards this assumption that a richer person with lots of material possessions can choose and then a poor person will have to follow God. Now, this isn't always necessarily truth. This is just an assumption that a poor person will have to um, and a rich person doesn't have to. I mean, you could kind of test it by doing a survey and, and think like, test someone's socioeconomic status or how much money they earn and then ask them questions like, how often do you pray? And then how often do you go to church? And um, everything like this. You could ask them that and try and create a correlation. It's hard to test that this is actually completely true because... You never know, maybe a rich person doesn't do it less than a poor person. But I think it's something to consider. I think it's interesting that a poor person is probably more likely to. Probably more likely. Verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who you are exploiting? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong? This is a reminder that it's actually the rich people that are picking on the poor people. It's the rich people who often discriminate the poor. And also, it is the rich who are the ones who tend to sin a little bit more. I mean, money is the root of all evil. And if you think about the rich young ruler who had their eye set on money more than God, riches are a barrier between a person and God. Some people might think, Oh, if we treat the rich well, then they will treat me well. But this is sort of an insult to God, because God provides for us, especially for the poor. It's silly to say that I'm going to put my trust in a person who seems like they've got a lot and might give me some of what they've got, as opposed to saying I'm going to put my trust in God who does have a lot, who has everything and will give me, who will provide for me. Why would you choose someone a human who is faulted as opposed to choosing God, especially the rich. Now, that's not to say that all rich people are bad. I think there are definitely a lot of rich people who are really good people, and it's definitely fine to go and interact with them. But just be aware of how much you put your faith in that person as opposed to putting your faith in God. Are they getting in the way of your relationship with God like the rich young ruler? Let's go verse 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure we all recognize that. It's the second greatest commandment, and it's talking about Jesus' teaching. Um, it's the law of love. And what is really cool is that this commandment is not just mentioned here, and it's not just mentioned by Jesus. It's also mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Leviticus. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among you, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
Then the second, Mark, it says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's Jesus speaking. Both Old Testament and New Testament talk about this, this law of love that goes beyond just the New Testament. It is a law that extends all of time and will continue to extend all of time as the second greatest commandment following that of to love your God. So why the royal law? The royal law. Well, the royal law, you could kind of translate royal to mean kingly, like king, king and queen, and kingly would then also mean the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So the royal law is the law about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it is basically a combination, a summation of all the laws combined. It is the epitome of laws, but only the second greatest commandment. And it is what Jesus wants us as believers to do. Hence, it is the royal law, the greatest, second greatest law. So why not give it a bold title like a royal? If you show favoritism, you sin. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Seems very harsh. Like anyone, I mean, I'm the favorite child. Does that mean my parents sin? (laughs) I think we've all had favorite things. I mean, we've all got our favorite sporting teams. We've all got our favorite chocolate. We've all got favorites. Does that mean we've all sinned? Well, it's a pretty blanket statement, but I think it's true. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, Proverbs 14. And James says it quite harshly, which makes us feel quite guilty. But Proverbs gives us this second line, which says, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. So it's not just you are sinful if you show favoritism. It is, here's an alternative that makes you not so bad. Um, There's a way out for you, mum and dad. It's such a nicer way of putting it, and that's why I really, I, I love James, but it, it, it just, it, it's a little bit harsh sometimes, and I feel like you've really got to look a bit deeper into the rest of Scripture to, to understand. So does this mean that, as it says in the next part, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So if you break one law, then you're guilty of all. Is this true? Well, the law is simply an expression of God's character and his will. It's what God gave us to emulate the best way we can what he wants us to be. But if we violate one of them, then we violate this will that God has chosen for us to follow. And so naturally, violating God's will, we violate the whole law. It's not just you violate that one law. You violated God's will and you violated the whole will, the whole law. And so it it makes us feel really sad that we've failed. It's hard to uphold every single law laid out for us. There's more than just the Ten Commandments. There is way more. And it's hard for us to uphold all of them. The human heart, in all its sinful ways, is hard to stay true to the law forever. So the point that James, I think, is trying to make here, you might initially think that oh, it's guarding against this idea of selective obedience, the fact that I'm going to choose what I want to do because I, I, I think I can follow that law and I'm going to choose what I'm going to avoid trying to follow. I'm going to select 
what I want to be obedient to. That's a fair thing to argue that James is trying to say. But even then, it's still almost impossible, or it is impossible for the humans, human heart, to uphold the whole law. And so we're doomed to be lawbreakers. We're all guilty. And so this is where the gospel comes in. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel is that even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory, we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Fortunately for us, through the grace of God and Jesus' death and resurrection, he has justified us all and set us all free. Justified is another one of these lawful terms, which is essentially meaning render just or be made innocent. And so when we're talking about law and lawbreakers, Jesus has made us all innocent. He has let us go. He has set us free. He's taken our place. We cannot save ourselves in all of our fallibility, but instead we've got to go to Jesus. We've got to, like, you think about it, I cannot possibly accomplish and fulfill all the laws. I need another way. And so it makes us run to Jesus. It makes us go to Jesus and look to him for a way out. And finally, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law that gives freedom, I'd say that this is talking about the royal law, the law of love, the second greatest commandment. And it talks about freedom because it is the freedom, it's hinting towards the freedom that we have in eternal life. People often think law means rules and then it means restrictions and restrictions means no freedom. But actually, the example I give to uh, the students on the camps that I do is about a sporting field. And you think about your favourite sporting game. I'll go with soccer. There are rules in place in that game to make the game better. We might hate some of the rules and think, oh, I don't want to have to wear shin pads. But actually, it makes the game better because you don't get injured as often. The rules make the game what it is. If everyone could use their hands to pick up the ball, it wouldn't be soccer anymore. It'd be more like rugby. The rules make the game better. They stop people from cheating. They give us clear boundaries. They limit injury. It would just be mayhem without the rules. And I think that this is the same, or at least what the intention of the law was. The law was not to stop us from having fun here on earth. It was actually there to help us to have more fun by reducing the bad bits that we do. Because us as humans naturally naturally happen to do bad things. And I think that's what it's talking about here. The law, not the law that restricts us, but the law that gives us freedom. People want the ability to do whatever they want right here, right now. They want the autonomy to make their own decisions here on earth. But sadly, not everything we think or do is good in God's eyes. And that's why we have the law. Judgment without mercy. Judgment without mercy. That's also pretty harsh. Let's try and put it simply. 
and I'm sorry if this doesn't make sense. This is as simple as I could get it. Everyone is bound for judgment because we all do bad things. Jesus will return and he will judge everyone according to what they have done. The only thing that can override this judgment is Jesus' mercy because his mercy triumphs over the judgment that we deserve. But judgment without mercy will be shown to those that are not merciful. So be merciful. I hope that made sense. That was as simple as I could break it down to. Matthew 5, Matthew 5, it talks about blessed are the merciful. We've got blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom, and blessed are the merciful. So be merciful. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus has already done it for us. He's already triumphed over judgment with his mercy. He died on the cross, a horrible death in our place. He did that already. It's done. He's given us a dump truck load of mercy doing what no other person could possibly do. And so we ought to give a dump truck load of mercy back to everyone else. It's a bit like love others because he first loved you. Show mercy because he first loved you. And I love it because this is what we've been talking about all this year, is the idea of being filled up, draw deep from God, be filled up with his spirit that you may overflow into other people's hearts. Be filled up with God's mercy and love that you may overflow into other people's hearts. So to finish off, let's go back to verse 2 and 3 and 4. This example of the two men in the bar, I mean in the meeting, and let's look at the possible reasons why they, the person that this is talking about in the analogy might have chosen to favour the rich person. There's three main problems that I see with the person's thinking. First is that we tend to focus more on outward appearance, but God looks at the inward appearance of a person. I remember working at Officeworks, we used to, uh, whenever a person who looked a little bit sketchy came into the store, instantly someone would announce over our headset, oh guys, there's someone here who looks a little bit dodgy. And so the manager would get straight up onto the PA system and they would announce over the PA system, uh, security to the Bluetooth speakers, security to the Bluetooth speakers. And then that person, who looked a little bit dodgy, was probably going to steal something, would get scared and leave. I just find it fascinating that even in my workplace, or in any of our workplaces, we look at a person straight away and we think, that person's probably going to steal something. I mean, 50% of the time they probably were. <laughs> but it's just interesting that we will often look at a person's outward appearance before we've even learnt anything about who they are on the inside, and we will make these assumptions. 1 Samuel, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We focus on what people look like on the outside. But God doesn't really care about that. He cares about who a person is in their heart. The second issue, I think, with this analogy is that we assume that those who have riches are blessed. 
We think that a person, because they've got lots of money or because they've got lots of power and lots of favour in the world here on earth, that they are rich. But we know from the previous passages we've talked about that God has chosen the poor. God has chosen the lowly. God has chosen those with very little, poor in material worth, to be rich in spirit. And so when you look at someone on the outside and you think that person is rich, not necessarily rich in spirit. And the third thing I think that we can tend to do is seek to gain selfishly. I think you maybe maybe relate when I, I say I'd be more likely to approach the CEO of KFC in the hope of getting free chicken or free merch as opposed to approaching a homeless person to chat about them because what does a homeless person have to give to me? I feel like that's a very real thing that people might do because we want to gain something for ourselves. But what good is it to gain something? We know that riches stored up here on earth are no good to us when we are dead. When we go to heaven, we leave everything behind. So there's some reasons why a person might favour another person, might show favouritism. Why shouldn't we show favouritism? Well, we've touched on a couple good examples throughout James. The first is that the rich persecute the poor. We saw it in verse 6 and 7. The rich are the ones who are actually condemning the poor. They're the bullies most of the time, not always. That's the first reason why it's we shouldn't be favouring the rich over the poor. Second point is that favouritism violates the royal law, the law of love. We should be loving everyone as much as we love ourselves. Love your neighbour as yourself. And the third point is that judgment will be shown to those who judge without mercy. If you want to be judged without mercy, then go ahead. But we need to be merciful in order for Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, to actually count for us. Be merciful. So what does this look like for us to be inclusive and loving and showing mercy? Now, it's not really for me to judge for you. It's not really for you to judge for the person sitting next to you. This is for you to look at in the book of James and think for yourself, what could I be doing more to love, accept, and welcome other people. How can I be doing this better? Because we know Scripture tells us, do not judge other people, for you will be judged. So think about it for yourself. I think about it when I think about youth group. I think, what can we be doing to be more inclusive and welcoming for young people into our youth group? And so we've, got, we've, we've done things. We've tried some things, got rid of them because they didn't work. We've tried new things. We've got things that we're currently doing. So when we have our youth group, we cater our program each term to try and do things a little bit differently. We do surveys so that we get information from them and see what they want so that more people feel like this is a place for them. The cost, we try and keep costs down and thanks to your generosity, we're able to do things for free, give free food. I heard a youth today, I overheard a conversation as I walked past and she came from a previous youth group, was just visiting to try it out and she's like, this place is awesome. They do free entry, free food and they talk about God. And I was like, perfect. This is a perfect place for you. We've also got things like a sensory box for any of those who need to spend some time by themselves just fiddling with things. There's lots of little things that we try and do to make it as welcoming as possible. And so then what does it look like for us as a church congregation to be welcoming for people who come into church, for welcoming for each other? 
the thing that I used to really dislike about the church, or at least the beginning of church, is when the host comes up and says, all right, chat to the person next to you for a second. Welcome them to church. We did it this morning. And it used to be so awkward. And I'm sure some of you think that still. But it's actually one of my favorite things now because you get to have a conversation with someone that you might not usually. You get to meet people who are part of the church just like you. And part of being connected and part of a church is to be to know other people. Not just to know your friends or your family who you already hang out with, but to get to know other people. So maybe that's something that you could challenge yourself on. I mean, this is not me telling you what to do. This is just giving some examples because it's up to you to decide what you could do. But maybe that's something you want to do, is to make a more active effort during that time to say hi to other people that you haven't said hi to before. Or even after the service, rather than rushing off to go home or rushing off to go wherever you need to go, maybe you could spend just a little bit of time grabbing a coffee and chatting to people. And especially for new people, new people who come to the church actively seeing when there's someone that you haven't seen before and going, that person, that person I want to welcome, that person I want to get connected with, that person, I want them to know how great this place is and how good it is to show love to each other. That's just a few different things that you could do to be more welcoming in church. And then there's this other place, the rest of your lives. Everywhere else, where can you go into your field to show love and mercy to other people? Now, I'm not going to answer that or suggest anything. I want you guys to think about that for yourselves. I want you guys to spend a couple minutes and you to think, reflect. What can you do both here in church and the rest of your life to show mercy and love to other people? Not just the ones that are easy to love, to all people, because we are all God's children. And we are all, all neighbours of each other. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.